What's up, Bike Rumor fans? So apparently, not every cheap e-bike sucks after all. Until recently, I was firmly in the camp that cheap hub motor e-bikes with cadence sensors were all terrible and unsafe. Then I talked to Kevin Duggar, founder of Ride One Up e-bikes, and he changed my mind. It's not so much the bikes that bugged me, although we'll talk about that too. It was the cadence sensors that told the motor to start going. It turns out there's a lot more to the on or off systems of the early days of the cheapest bikes. It also turns out there are some really good use cases for hub motors and cadence sensors and that their performance, or lack thereof, really comes down to how their controllers are programmed. Kevin and I get into the details of what makes a good cadence sensor system, when you might want one instead of a torque sensor mid-drive bike, and lots of other interesting details about making e-bikes affordable without sacrificing quality and safety. If you're in the market for an e-bike but have a small budget, you'll definitely want to listen to this episode. Please welcome Kevin Duggar. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I, I want to tee up what we are really here to talk about because we're going to talk a little bit about your company and how you got started uh, before we really dive into the meat of it. But you and I spoke a couple of days ago because I was really curious about your cadence sensor on some of your bikes. And, you know, I've always been in the impression that for e-bikes, the cadence sensor is kind of like just what people throw on a cheap bike because it says, okay, yes, they're pedaling, tell the motor to go. And I, I was not a fan as I've ridden some really cheap ones and I feel like they're dangerous that for reasons I'll get into. You know, it, you know, my preference has always been kind of the mid motors with the torque sensor. It's a more sophisticated design generally and stuff. And you, you really had some interesting perspectives on it. And also your technology, I think, is a lot more sophisticated than people may realize for a cadence sensor. So for people who have always kind of wondered what the difference is or, you know, why you might want one over the other, we will definitely dive deep into that in a few minutes. But first, uh, you know, we popped up. I'm watching you on screen. People are listening to this without the benefit of seeing you. When the screen first came on, you're actually like much younger than I thought. So I'm really curious, like, how did you start a e-bike company and tell us a little bit about ride one ups origin story sure yeah 36 uh but thank you uh i actually in university um in northern california i worked as a self-employed bike mechanic i would buy up uh all old used trash throw throw away bikes um that were worth salvaging and fixing fix them up in my garage sell them back to people to university students and that was kind of my hustle to get through school uh, and to save up a bunch of money. And at that time, I always wanted to build a bike business, but I didn't have the the money, the capital to do it. Um, I worked kind of real estate and uh, flipping houses for a few years and bought a house when I was 22, 20, 22-ish, and uh, was able to sell that and pool all of the money I had earned working over the next four or five years, and then uh, went exploring how to to best build a bike business. So that uh, took me to the manufacturing center of the world, which was <laughs> flying Taiwan. to China and meeting... Ja, with China, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, me, yeah, Taiwan, China, meeting different factory owners, seeing how they were doing, who was kind of on top of it, who was more passionate about it, and partnered up back then with a order of 300 uh, bikes initially. And it was in the beginning a little bit more generic and uh, learned a lot about, you know, how we wanted to customize our products and what we wanted to focus on. And I took a lot of that uh, original bike mechanic experience with me 
um, in terms of focusing on components that in five years, 10 years, people would still want to work on them or service them and maintain them. And like a, a critical goal was not just making the bikes affordable, but finding a price point in which the bikes wouldn't be in a landfill in five or 10 years. So it wouldn't be just a waste of the entire mission of, of kind of being environmentally uh, friendly or efficient with what we were delivering. So we wanted it to be efficient and long lasting. Cool. Yeah, I like that because there are definitely some super cheap e-bikes out there where I I would give them a five to 10 month lifespan before they're just, people just aren't riding them because they ride like crap. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people in the industry, you know, we, we just had our, uh, an employee kind of holiday get together and everybody, we were, were talking about the different bikes in the industry and what's going on. And I think a lot of us underestimate how many sub $1,000 bikes, you know, 700, $500 e-bikes are actually getting out there through Amazon, other channels that are just, yeah, really, th- those are the ones you also hear about with the battery fire risks also. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, they're kind of, Typically, Chinese manufacturer like companies, not even, you know, they're selling under the Chinese label of that company and just popping up with a new name every few years. And there's not a lot of support planned. And they're just trying to kind of get a product uh, at, a, at a really low price to people and still make some money doing it. So, you know, you've seen that with Anchir and other brands like that, where they're just like, you know, five, six hundred dollars. And you have to sacrifice a lot to get that price point on an e-bike. Yeah. I mean, you sacrifice a lot to get to that price point on a non-e-bike, right? To have yeah, a, exactly. you know, decent quality. So I'm curious from like a, a brand and a marketing standpoint, right? Like the people who are shopping for a, even a sub $2,000 e-bike are probably not like very sophisticated cyclists. They, you know, they just want a bike that's going to be okay. And that looks cool. And yeah, I think I need an e-bike because my friend's got an e-bike and it was super fun, right? So how do you um, like how do you market to that audience where in less sophisticated terms but still convey the difference between you guys and those five to seven to eight hundred dollar e-bikes? Yeah, that's a, it's a struggle. I'm not our marketing guy, and I was never the best at marketing, um, but it it is a struggle to differentiate. You know, when a lot of people when they're shopping, they look at battery uh, specs or electronic specs. They'll look at oh, what's the motor wattage and what's the battery. Uh, amp hours or watt hours. And then that's, you know, all they really know to look for. They're kind of comparing as you would with like a laptop, you know, you're looking at like, oh, what's the processor and how many gigs of RAM? And and and, and it's not, uh, obviously, as you know, it's not the full story by any means with, with a bike. So it's really hard, you know, to, to let them know, oh, well, we, we're using a better headset or we're using a, this bottom bracket's a little bit better quality. And, and here you're going to get a better uh, wheel build. And it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, mean as much. So it's tricky. I think over time, we're trying to market through reputation and through through the support and sort of word of mouth is our biggest build. Yeah, it, it is tricky to differentiate though with, with customers that aren't going to spend that much time to learn about bikes. And they want yeah. it, you know, like you said, they like the trend and idea of having an e-bike. You know, it's, it, we can't really get involved in a race to the bottom in prices. So we're just trying to educate like, you know, your podcast will do educate the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys hit a nice, I don't want to say middle ground, because if you look at the price spectrum of some e-bikes going to like $15,000, you're, you're, you're still toward the bottom. But in terms of that middle ground between like, this is going to sound real, like I'm not disparaging right one up, but to say like, there's like, 
the cheap stuff and there's like ride one up and then there's like, you know, the specializing treks of the world, right? But in terms of the price point, there's that middle level where it's like a good quality thing, but without all that huge brand name recognition amongst cyclists, right? Yeah. And I'm using air quotes there. Yeah. And I have one of your bikes and I actually really, really like it. I like when I got it and first rode it and put it together and everything, I was just like, every little step of the, the process for that was, I was pleasantly surprised. So I think you guys are doing something really good. You know, the, just to step back for a second in terms of like educating people about it, you know, like I just literally just sent in the last chapters for the next Biking for Dummies book. So I got a chance to write that and was, had a lot of fun with it. And one of my tips was when you're looking at bikes that, you know, are very affordable, look for any kind of brand name mention for parts, right? And in particular, suspension forks, I think, are a good litmus test where if you see, you know, suspension fork and and that's it then it's I, you know like buyer beware right but as soon as the brand cares enough to put like sr sun tour in front of it or rock shocks in front of it or or something right like almost any brand name it just sort of shows that they have paid attention to the details and that's a that's a good kind of like indicator that you're probably going to get something a little bit better yeah i would add rock shocks on a standard around town bike probably not cost effective Simply, you know, in that brand, especially Suntour's more reasonable. But again, it depends on your use. I mean, just just RockShocks obviously have higher end forks. So if you're if you're doing any sort of trail riding, absolutely. Um, but you know, if you're riding around town and not expecting downhill performance or any you know any type of uh, more intense trail riding, then then you might not need it. Um, but yeah, I, I do definitely agree with the sentiment. Yeah. And I want to give a little kudos to SR Suntour, so I don't want to sound like they're the, the cheap ones. Like they make some incredible forks, and then you know, but they, I think they trickle down into the price points yeah, much, much lower than yeah, Rockshox. They're or more Fox affordable. Rockshox doesn't quite go that low. Uh, Fox definitely doesn't go that low. Um, but Suntour do have reasonable. I mean, for us, we use quite a few and have used quite a few Suntour forks. So yeah, and the difference between those and the you know, the, the no-name stuff, just in terms of like right out of the box, the amount of play and flex that come from the, the no-name stuff is, it scares me. Um, there, I have so much brake shutter on the one that I reviewed like a long time ago. Anyway, so let's talk cadence sensors versus torque sensors. You know, for people who don't know, the cadence sensor literally just says, oh, okay, I'm pedaling. There's, there's motion at the pedals, so let's send some power to the motor. And the torque sensor sees that motion and thinks about or looks at also like how hard are you pedaling like how much force are you applying to the pedals and you guys have a cadence sensor that tries to do a little bit of both and i'm hoping you can explain that to me yeah so it it will not be able to tell you or it will not be able to pick up of course on how hard you're pedaling at all it just tries to we we've there's more to it than just turning on and off to determine how to make that ride experience feel more natural um, so that's where, you know, it gets complicated. And even when people, customers have had the experience of a torque versus cadence sensor in the past, it almost makes it more complicated. They're not going to have ridden, you know, 10 or 20 different cadence sensor bikes and compared them to 10 different torque sensor bikes. Most people will have an experience with one or two, and then that's kind of what they will form their opinion on the difference between those two setups is. So 
which I did. I'm, I'm guilty of that, right? Like I rode some really cheap cadence sensor ones, did not like them at all. And then I got yours and I was like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. And I don't blame you. I, I would still say torque sensor is going to be a better fit for a performance type rider. Uh, absolutely. Mountain biking, uh, even just somebody that wants a more natural, uh, organic feel on their bike. They want to be more in control with their legs. They want that feeling of the ride just to be more like a regular bike. Uh, torque sensor is still going to win, uh, you know, almost every time. But with our cadence sensor, you know, I was trying to tell you for a lot of type, uh, a lot of types of riders uh, and use cases, it can be better to have a cadence sensor once it's kind of set up properly or properly in in, in my eyes, where you know, with ours, uh, we're using a current-based system as opposed to a speed-based uh, system for that cadence sensor. So that simple uh, difference right there is speed-based system, which was used primarily in the past on most cadence sensor bikes, is we're going to have level one take you to a set speed. You know, level one of your pedal assist take you to a set speed. Level five will take you to, you know, the highest set speed that we set it to. So when you start pedaling, it kind of accelerates you there pretty quickly, tapers off, and is designed to hold you around that speed. Uh, and that that was fine. Re- regardless of how fast you're pedaling, right? Yeah. Like you could it, literally be soft pedaling at 5 RPM. <laughs> right. It was unrelated to just once, once that cadence sensor was engaged or turned on by the pedals moving forward, that's how it would... It, you know, the, it would get you to that speed based on the pedal assist level you had selected in your display. You know, that that setting or that that speed-based system felt unnatural because it was jerky. It would kind of jump you up to a speed and, and then hold you there. And your legs didn't make much of a difference of what you were doing. Um, so that that's that's one of the many differences in, in the two. But uh, the speed-based system... Uh, has started, you know, it's, it's lost a lot of favor and it's now mostly or more companies are switching to a current base, which is what we use, which is uh, each level of your pedal assist that you select uses or, you know, you you um, send a specific amount of current or wattage to the motor when you're pedaling. So when it's engaged in one, for example, and almost all of our displays, when it's appropriate, depending on the model, uh, you can customize that amount of wattage at one through five or one through nine levels of pedal assist. So for us, level one, for example, would give you 70 watts. And this is a rounded 70 watts because it also varies um, based on other factors, which we'll get into next. But it, it would give you 70 watts, for example, whereas level five could get you 900 watts of power at peak. And um, that's, you know, doesn't matter how much you're pedaling, how fast you're pedaling. Uh, but what, what it does is it allows you, say, you're commuting to work or you know, you're know you riding up a hill or, or whatever it is. But say you're commuting to work, you're going at 20 miles an hour, you want X amount of assist, but you still want to kind of vary the amount of leg input uh, you're putting in. Uh, you, you can absolutely do that. And that's kind of the beauty of it is, oh, I can get 300 watts of assistance and I can still use as much or as little legs as I want. Whereas in a speed-based system, if you use more legs, you would catch up to that speed that it was set at and it would taper off and then it would kick back on. Uh, So it was kind of more jerky or jumpy, whereas these current-based systems just are more 
uh, natural. There's now there's many other little factors at play. I, I think we you know we touched on these before, but um, when you're you know when you're engaging your pedals, uh, some sensors the, the sensors themselves vary a lot on how sensitive they are. Uh, you know you can have the crank spin five ten degrees and kick kick on the pedal assist sensor or the uh, the, the cadence sensor. And then it'll feel maybe too jumpy if it's happening too quickly. And you can have it be where more bike companies are at, at like the 90 to 180 degrees of rotation. Some are even all like a full rotation, which is kind of way too much or way too, uh, it's, it's just kind of cheap feel, but it's like, uh, you know, you don't know when the pedal assist is going to kick in. So it also feels jumpy that way. And then there's, you know, how much, then there's the speed or acceleration curve when you're starting to pedal. So you don't want it, obviously, you wouldn't want it to go from zero to 100 of whatever pedal assist level you're in right away. So there's, there's determining or programming that right amount of acceleration curve once you've pulled the cadence sensor to start going. Um, and then same thing with the disengage or when you're, you know, if you're coasting or you slow your pedal a little bit, programming when or how much the cadence sensor or the the controller really rather than the actual cadence sensor should disconnect or disengage the motor and how smoothly that should happen because you know we've w- during our like you know we've been refining this for a while but when you're coasting and you're you know kind of slowing down and maybe you you stop a half pedal at the top you don't want it to have that jerky sensation where it's it stops and then it goes again and especially if you're at a higher level of pedal assist like l- level 3 or three through five and you're getting 400 watts of power just off and then on again, it's going to feel like it's really jolting you forward. So there's a lot of subtleties where it's hard to know how that brands refine their system and how, how it's going to feel just by knowing whether it's a cadence or a torque sensor. Um, we, you know, I will say we've had uh, torque sensors. We have, I think one of the, one of the best torque sensors in the brand, in the industry uh, bros, which have, you know, like Bosch, you could, you could argue that there's, you know, smoother feeling ones or better feeling ones, but I think bros has a very smooth feeling torque sensor, uh, among the best in the industry. But, you know, we've had, I, I prefer to ride oftentimes when it's more of a utilitarian setting, I prefer to ride our cadence sensor over that bros torque sensor, because you have to work the whole time to get, and, and I don't mind pedaling. Like, I, I like pedaling. But if I'm going up a hill, which I live on a on a kind of steep hill now, I want to go back. You know, I'm I'm riding in traffic, so uh, again, my rides are not generally. It's like a daily ride that I'm doing to get around, and not a recreational ride. And I want to keep up with the flow of traffic. And all of our bikes, motor power wise, are capable of climbing these hills and keeping up with traffic. But for the with the Bros Torque Sensor, I'm going to have to sweat. I mean, like I'm working to get up that hill at 20 miles an hour or even close to it. And if I use one of our cadence sensor models, I can use as much leg as I want and still work, but I can work within the limit of, of, you know, what I was feeling like working and still climb up that hill by just adjusting or just, you know, one or two clicks of my pedal assist level select. And it just gives me more customized output. Um, for the for what I'm feeling like putting into it, so I can ride up that hill with the speed of traffic. So, like, th- I guess that's the biggest difference I would say is that you know, and I know I I went on a lot in that kind of rant, but 
the biggest difference I would say is it's like, it's not, it's just not a, a one is better than the other. In my mind, it's one fits a certain type of ride uh, versus another. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And that's, that was something I hadn't thought about prior conversation, but uh, yeah, just to kind of paraphrase that in, in my words is, you know, with the cadence sensor one, like you put it on a high assist level and you can kind of just pedal along easily, but still keep up with traffic or get up the really tough hills without having to kill yourself. Whereas with the torques based ones, you know, which is typically mid motor ones to go faster, you have to pedal harder. And, uh, yeah, I, and I want to just add a little clarifying point on the, the current based ones that you mentioned where, you know, compared to the speed based ones where each mode would have a, a subsequently greater top speed with the current base, the top speed is what it is, right? So for a class one, it would be 20 miles an hour. Right. And even the lowest assist level could get you to 20 miles an hour. You're just doing more work to get there, but you put it on like level five and you could be soft pedaling and cruising at 20 miles an hour, which is for a commuter, I could see that that's great, right? Like you don't want to show up at work or school or whatever, all sweaty and huffing and puffing. Right. Yeah. Whereas with a torque one, yeah, like even on the high mode, the torque ones, you're still going to put a little more effort into it. Exactly. And there's even a lot of refinement between our torque sensors. Uh, for example, we have a, a limited that we use the torque sensor on as one of our models. And we have a new model that we're uh, developing now. Uh, this new model uses a uh, kind of fully incorporated system. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know how much I want to talk about it right now, but uh, <laughs> Mivis is, is the brand. They use a controller, sensor, and motor in combo. Um, hmm. you know, like, I don't know if you've ever ridden a Stromer, uh, the, the German brand, they're high end hub motor, but torque sensor really nicely refined where it's as good as a mid drive torque sensor. Um, but it, you know, you're paying $7,000 for that bike, but it's really nice refined system. Um, but what we're doing on our limited and, and even this, this new model we're kind of, we're, we're, we're working on is on the highest levels, even in the torque sensor system, we want it to be a little bit easier than bros make it to maintain a top speed or a top level of, of power output. So, you know, you'll have the options to still use a mid-level uh, pedal assist, uh, you know, with your torque sensor, um, where you're, you know, you have to work hard to get up that hill. But we wanted to have, because this was actually a common complaint for users and even a common return reason is if they don't have that kind of peak output setup where, okay, level, the highest level, level five generally, or, you know, depends if you're doing what level of pedal assist you're doing, but level five, if it's not easy to climb up that hill, um, a lot of people, weaker, weaker riders, or just people that, again, didn't want to work that hard. Like you said, you're going to work and you don't want to arrive sweaty. Um, they still have that option to climb up it easier. So we're working on like our, our, our limited level five, you don't have, you know, you apply a very light amount of, of torque to, to kind of hit that max amount. Uh, but it changes the characteristics a lot where, you know, it wouldn't be as smooth in that, in that level. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, I find it funny. You probably don't that people would actually return a bike because it wasn't easy enough. <laughs> like they, like they yeah. thought it would be easier to go up a hill. Well, yeah. W one of our, that was one of the most returned, uh, models for a little while, uh, was the torque sensor limited. And it was really just primarily because it was, it was tiring. Yeah, that's crazy. You guys have like customized controllers that let people set all of that. Is that app-based or how do you do that? Do you do it all on the little screen on your bike? 
No. Oh, so the ability to change your level of pedal assist, um, say you, you just want to lower up the wattage output, uh, potential on all the levels. Yeah. It's in the little display on the bike. So, um, and you know, we have videos of it, but you essentially, you know, you're going to hold two buttons. You're going to go into the menu, advanced menu, and then you select your, okay, I want zero through three levels of pedal assist. And I want one at, you know, 10% potential peak. I want one at 30% and one at 90, um, or, you know, any, any levels you can imagine. So, uh, with our current base system, say we have a 22 amp, uh, controller. It's a 48 volt bike, uh, you know, 48 times 22. Oh, it's, it's a little bit over a thousand. Um, so, le- you know, if you put it at 99% or a hundred percent in level five, that would take you to that potential peak. Um, and you can basically customize anything from zero to a hundred on our bikes. So if you, you know, you, sometimes you'll, you'll ride a, I'll ride different model bikes. You know, I was comparing a bunch of different models this last couple, uh, couple weeks. They don't, some, some have been adding that, uh, but you'll get to like, maybe the difference between four and five or three and four in their pedal assist levels is not is is too much or too substantial or i couldn't find a middle ground that i really liked to ride you know i I typically go like i said faster because i'm either in traffic or trying to get somewhere like you know you're going 20 miles and you're just trying to get there quickly uh but i do like to pedal um so if it's you know too much power it feels like you're i'm not really able to use my legs at all uh this is you know i'm not i'm not applying much i'm not helping much and if it's too little power you know you you can't maintain those higher speeds so uh, I know that seems, it seems like a little detail, but it is kind of annoying when you can't have those micro adjustments to the levels you like or the amount of output you like. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think, especially on mountain bikes, like I've ridden some of the really high powered e mountain bikes. And yeah, you jump from like the, the regular fast level to like the turbo mode. And it's sometimes so significant that you're like, I can't control the bike. Like I, I can't maintain traction. It's just spinning. You know what's funny about that is bros. Uh, even on our systems, the first generation we released, you could adjust the level of pedal assist like I'm talking about on ours. It was different. It worked in a plus or minus percentages, uh, actually just minus percentages. So so boost, you could reduce the percentage of output. Um, same with their sport and same with their tour and eco. Uh, you could reduce it a little bit so you could customize it that way. But they removed that functionality in their displays. Um, and they've kind of, it's tough working with an outside party like that uh, because they have a lot of control over their their how their system operates. So you know they've made it because Europe Europe is okay. Any of these speed pedelec bikes, we need uh, lights on at all times. So they changed their software so that our headlights and tail lights have to stay on at all times when riding. So it's been and, and you know we can't we can't adjust it. Um, so it's been kind of frustrating. Um, you know, working with an outside system like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. You look at what like Bros and Shimano and Fazua and Bosch and you know Yamaha, all of them do, right? Is they're they're kind of marketing their motors as their own thing, right? And then which gives brands an opportunity to piggyback on that, you know, and and kind of choose one over the other based on that motor brand's marketing. But yeah, they they really do. Other with few exceptions, um, you know, some of the bigger brands have the clout to kind yeah. of demand custom tuning, right? But yeah. a lot of people don't. Yeah. Specialized, for example, will use Bros's motors or hardware, but because they had that reputational damage from their their 
kind of belt issue that bros had inside their motors, uh, they stopped branding them with, with bros motors. So yeah, it, it's, you know, we've demanded the changes also. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought our, our relationship was meaningful enough, but it's, it's more of they weren't willing to, they don't have a big enough market in North America. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a lot of little complexities about how they're designing their system. Like we, uh, first generation of our motors with them, we had uh, uh, color icons for eco through boost, as you would expect, you know, one's green and then it goes up and gets to red. Uh, apparently Shimano had sued over the colors being their design patent. Uh, you know, hey, mm. this is our design to use green for eco and red for boost, which, you know, I, I wouldn't think you could really claim is significant enough. But because that's not meaningful, I think the market in North America for bros, they didn't even bother fighting it or defending it. So then they just changed them to the monochrome, uh, which kind of sucked for us or just customers of those you know, motors. Uh, yeah, you'd think uh, green is kind of universally the color for eco and every, everything. Yeah. Interesting. So what, you know, with the hub motors then, because you guys don't you use the bros for the mid motor bikes, but for the hub motors, are you, do you have more sway over the manufacturer to say, hey, I need it this way or tune it this way and this, that and the other? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, and it's not just hub motors. I mean, if we wanted to use, I, you could do the same with different uh, brand mid drive motors. Uh, but really the, the tuning is obvious, as we talked about, it's more in the controller, you know, hmm. in your in the skate or scooter world, it's the ESC, which is your, your speed controller, uh, and it's the I mean, it's the same operation on all e-bikes. You know, your 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 controller is obviously where you're doing all the programming and customization. I mean, you can you can change the hardware of the motor and how it's going to you know how it's geared, how it's going to operate, um, whether you want it more tor- torquey, better high speeds, uh, but our you know the controller programming is what is very uh, hit, hidden or it's hard to disclose, talk about and advertise how your controller is going to be programmed, how it, the brand, I don't, I mean, I go look at a lot of other bike companies, websites and products out there. Um, and they don't talk much about their controller. I mean, understandably so, because it's not really a consumer, it's not an area where they're going to be that informed or even be able to, to know that much of a difference between a brand or how you've programmed your controller. But we talked about, we touched on this, but sine wave versus square wave in controllers makes a big difference for the smoothness as well of the motor application. And what's the difference between those? Yeah, so, like, so what's it's the nutshell version? How it's inverting that current and in a sine wave controller, in short, it's operating more like a dimmer, uh, whereas a square wave controller is more of an on-off. And it's let, you know, you, you're... Th- those waves are um, more gradual. And so it's applying the power in a more smooth way. So sine wave controllers are more efficient. Uh, they're more efficient, more expensive, um, but they are also smoother in that power application. So like the the cheap bikes that you get on where like you literally touch the pedals and it just lurches forward, that would be like a square wave because it's, yes, you know, but there, go you know, power still, on. <laughs> a sine wave could still lurch forward depending on how you program that controller, but it has definitely more ability to apply smoother power. Uh, it also is more efficient and quieter too. One of the other things you see with square wave controllers is the motors become a little bit louder. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, there, there, that's one of the big differences, I think, in a lot of the cheap e-bikes that people have a terrible, you know, going back to why people think 
cadence is so much worse than torque. I mean, in in many cases, even still with a really nice cadence sensor, if you're mountain biking, a torque sensor is just going to be better for you. But for a lot of riders, recreational riders, commuters, that cadence sensor, a lot of these bad experiences came from a square wave controller with a poorly poorly programmed square wave controller with a basic uh, cadence sensor that may have reacted after a 90 degree, maybe 180 degree pedal. And the disengage would be another 90, 180 degree. So it's going to carry fo- carry you forward for longer. And we were guilty of this too in the beginning with some of our bikes where it, it wasn't as refined as it should have been. And it led to people having a really negative perception of cadence sensors overall. Whereas, yeah. you know, that's not the entirety of the story. Yeah. Well, so you talked about like the brands, you know, like bike brands like yourself don't really want to disclose their programming, this, that, and the other. And, you know, that was sort of what led to the our having a conversation to begin with is you actually have like some some branding or, you know, like I think it was PAS, per, forgive me if I'm wrong on that, but like you have a little bit of nomenclature around your cadence sensor. But I was looking and I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, what is that acronym? What is, <laughs> I want to know more because it sounds like you've put some thought into it, but I couldn't find anything that explained like why it was different. And is that like trade secret stuff or you just think people no, don't care? No, it's not. What We're actually releasing this this post and blog post. We should have it already on the site. And I have to, I have to uh, check on this because our R1 CBC is essentially that our program current based cadence sensor pedal assist. Now we have um, a, our you know our support uh, knowledge center where we post the detailed explanation of these things and our company you know our blogs where we update people on on product differences. Uh, we just need to do a better job of sharing this and you know a question mark on our product page next to that description. So. You know, you you learn more when you want to learn more about our cadence sensor and our controller. Um, so we we take you to that explanation, and so we we do need to do a better job. Um, you know, embedding educational or informational videos as well as descriptions on what what makes our pedal assist and what makes our cadence sensor different than others, other than you know video reviews where people talk about how it feels because. Our, you know, that's our job is, as you talked about in the beginning of this call was how do you educate people? You know, why are you buying? What's the difference between buying this $1,000 e-bike and the $700 e-bike? And, and this is a perfect example of we can't, you know, we can't expect you, you can't write R1 CBC, not explain what the difference is and then expect consumers to be educated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it works sometimes, right? You know, <laughs> it makes it sound fancy, but you know, one of my, my dad's favorite savings was, you know, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. And I think there's, there's a lot of that going on in the marketing world, not just in bike industry, but, um, I much prefer it when there's some brilliance to dazzle behind the scenes. Yeah. No, we just need to, we need to work on our, our information and finding a way to get it. The thing is that people get overwhelmed. I mean, if you're, if you're not, you know, you're not coming from the bike industry or you're not that savvy. And you kind of just want to know that you're getting a good deal and you're not, you know, that you're not getting ripped off and that you're going to get like the experience that you would expect. That's where we need to make that understanding the information a little bit easier. Yeah. Like, you know, just kind of teaching people as they're, they're looking through your site, like guiding them to that, guiding them to the point where they realize that here's why I should care, right? Like, here's what I need to pay attention to and just exactly educating them on what they need to look at, which I think, you know, it becomes, 
you become the partner they trust now because you explain why they need to know this, that, and the other. Exactly. Which I guess all boils down to that's what content marketing is, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask about like cadence or torque sensors that you find fascinating, you know, as you've kind of built these up over the years of your brand? Well, we touched on on most important things. I think hub versus mid-drive, we didn't really talk talk about. Uh, I think generally torque sense, I mean, you know, most mid-drives, I don't think, I, I, I don't know of a cadence sensor mid-drive that exists. So um, when you're, you know, mid-drives are going to apply the power in a slightly smoother way since it's going through your, your, your drivetrain. You know, it's going to almost inherently be a little bit more natural uh, than a hub motor. However, we've, like I mentioned with Stromer and this Mivis system that we're working on. And, you know, our, our limit is not quite there. Um, but there are models in which your torque sensor hub motor system can integrate pretty well and still feel pretty natural. Uh, I mean, quite, quite natural. And I, again, I've, you know, this is a bit early for me to be able to talk about that Mivis system that we have in the works. But there are, like, like Stromer is just a perfect case study of there are good ways to have a a feel that's very similar to a mid-drive torque sensor on a hub motor. And it's it, why that's important. I mean, not again, a mid-drive is not for everyone and a hub motor is certainly not for everyone. Um, but it just depends on the type of riding, the type of use y- you want. Uh, in many cases, I think hub motors are preferable. It just depends what type of, of riding you would do. So I would obviously you would never suggest a, a hub motor for somebody doing off-road or, or kind of mountain bike style riding. Um, but for around town, even for light adventure riding, hub motors can be perfectly fine. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge you find in bringing a good quality bike to market at an affordable price, right? And I'm saying like sub 2000. Customer demands, I guess, is we have a, a, a number of those bikes. I think we have a number of really good quality bikes, sub 2000. And it, you know, it depends what level of components you want to consider good quality. Um, like I talked about at the start of this call, which was, you know, I would refurbish 20 year old Bianchi's, 20 year old Trek giant specialized bikes and sell them back to college students. And those bikes could last another five, 10 years, depending on how you maintain them. And I think they're good quality, right? But those were using rim brakes. You know, they were using really kind of basic components at times, but they were still built to a quality that I think stands the test of time or that works. It just doesn't have the tech that a lot of people demand. Um, So when you get into, you know, and this belts aren't necessarily that expensive, but you know, there's newer trends that everybody kind of wants where they want a belt drive system and they want an IGH and they want like all of these special features that aren't always, you know, they're not necessary and they don't, you know, they can be, I mean, it's, it's debatable whether they're all necessary, but nowadays, obviously everybody's buying hydraulic brakes, right? Nobody wants, you know, so what, I guess one of the issues is getting all of those added features that usually come at, come with a premium, um, and still getting the rest, you know, the, the, the core and the meat and the potatoes of the bike at a good componentry level at a high level, um, you know, the costs start to go up. But uh, like I said, I think we do have a number of, of good quality bikes. I would say the other, the other really hard part, if you want to stay under 2000 and have those, that good, uh, level of componentry is battery size and power of the bike. Um, you know, larger batteries, 
the, it, it shifts the design and the, you know, people do, obviously they want more range. They want a bigger battery in, in, in my world. I mean, it, again, this also depends what type of riding you're doing. If you look at the traditional uh, bike industry style uh, mountain bike or road bikes that they're designing, they're trying to go 500 watt hour packs, uh, actually anywhere from 300 watt hour packs to seven, 800 watt hour packs. And then anything above that, they try to sell you an add on pack uh, to kind of add your range. Um, and that it makes sense. Uh, a lot of pu- customers in, in our space and that D2C and more just r- recreational riding e-bikes want, they want even more. Um, but it changes your, it changes your ride and your feel. And the only two, um, that we go above a 48 volt, 15 amp hour pack, which seven, roughly like 700 watt hours. The only two that we go above that are bikes that are like 80 pounds and they're fully equipped as such, you know, they're bigger tires, they're uh, bigger frames, they've got more functional brakes. And a lot of it is like the, the increasing that battery size. Um, it's kind of like those like backyard builder mentality of bikes. When you increase the, <laughs> like the battery size, if you don't increase the safety capabilities or the other like aspects of the bike, it's like you're kind of undersizing the bike for the amount of, of uh, battery weight. And same with the motor. If then you, if you're going to put on a more substantial motor, you're going to add a little bit of weight there. Uh, so you, you're changing the the build overall, um, and all of those things, including like package size and bike overall product weight, are increasing the overall deliverable cost to a customer. Um, so in a lightweight, in our in our Roadster, those kind of model we're we're working on and revamping um, to. We, I think our, we have a really high quality, <laughs> this is next gen, we have a really high quality product that if you were to, you know, hopefully we can, we can, we can send you one. Um, it, you know, there's, there's nothing on there that's lacking in terms of componentry. And, and you wouldn't say like anything about that build is cheap. And we're going to price that, you know, in the $1,100 range. Um, and it's, it, the only thing it's really lacking is it's not going to be as fast and, uh, have as much range as one that's like a 60 volt or 52 volt, uh, thousand watt hour pack that, you know, we go, Oh, you can go 35 miles an hour. I'm seeing a little bit of demand out there. You know, it depends what type of customer you're looking at, but I guess those are the hardest things is the people that shop specs, um, that just want, you know, high battery specs, high motor output specs, and the people that want the new and latest, you know, Oh, I want the, I want, uh, uh, well, I would say belt, but we actually do have a belt on a belt version on that. But the people that shop for an IGH or something like that, you know, internal GitHub, they're they're um, making it difficult in some ways to get all of those good quality components and those new features and this the high electronic specs um, deliverable at that price point. But on a lightweightish bike, you know, 25, 26 miles an hour is a good speed because you're, you know, when you start to go into the 30 mile an hour plus, you don't have you don't have the wheel size or you know the tire size uh, and other safety kind of features for that bike to be fully equipped for that for that kind of performance. Yeah, well, and at that point you're beyond a class three. I, that's when you start to need a license over 28 miles an hour, right? Like, right. Do you guys yeah. make bikes that go faster? Well, we have our our Rev One, which is really it's a 28 mile per hour class three, or it's it's actually a class two out of the box, and this is that gray area that a lot of companies operate in right now. Uh, where we design it as a class two out of the box, you can which is throttle, 
Yeah, you, class two just means it has a throttle. Yeah, right? you can adjust it to a class three 28 mile per hour pedal assist uh, out of the box. Then if you go onto our website, sign a waiver, understand that this is only for off-road use, you can unlock it to be 37 mile per hour bike. Wow. But un- under throttle. The problem, you know, is policing that and making sure that that's not um, done, you know, as a as a regular around town rider. Uh, yeah. And then, the, like I mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, as you probably know, in your neighborhood, um, there's a lot of people riding. Um, what's that brand? It's uh, Suron, uh, you know, Talaria, um, uh, Onyx, a lot of bike brands that make uh, almost essentially like electric motorcycles. Like mm-hmm. Kids or anyone can ride around town and kind of dirt muddy the waters with what's allowed. It's not yeah. really legal for these companies to make that um, and not claim, you know, if they're claiming it's off-road only product, makes sense. You know, Suron might be in better position to say, like, we're selling electric dirt bikes. That's all we're selling. Like, it, you know, that's fair, fair game. That's the way their product's designed. Really, it's the user that's taking on that risk and riding around. And their bikes could be impounded at any time. Uh, but this is just that gray area we're seeing now where some people do want more than 28 mile per hour speeds, but really that's not the way most states, uh, it's just not the way it's set up um, in this country or in most parts of the world where you can you can design and ride those bikes on public roads. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if anything, the U.S. is far uh, more lenient, higher speed yeah. limits yeah. than anywhere, you know, maybe... Mexico. That's I actually had to research after the book. In Mexico, just kind of like it's actually hard to find any sort of definitive guidelines. Um, they didn't. Yeah, some guys both. I know that live there just like, yeah, you know, just don't get caught. <laughs> just don't get caught. Well, that's kind of the way it's been feeling here lately. But I, I would like a little bit more uh, crackdown, really, in, in in some ways, where they're more clear on 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 you know we're going to go after these companies or or these riders that are not following the, the rules, and it's. I think we've made it out to be more complicated than it than it is. It's not it's not that complicated. The current class guidelines are pretty clear. Um, we just need to see more um, kind of enforcement of it. Yeah, yeah. Before they start taking those things on the mountain bike trails and really ruining. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, you'll see ki- kids on surons on on mountain bike trails, and obviously they're going to get yelled at. I mean, it's yeah, I <laughs> I sympathize with that. Yeah, fortunately, I haven't seen them around here, but yeah, it's. They're definitely all that stuff's getting more popular. I've seen a couple of the like the super seventy threes on the the greenway with people just literally just kicking back, holding the throttle, and you know cruising right past us, yeah, super fast. But anyway, well, cool, Kevin. Thanks for your time. I appreciate the intel and the kind of the insights into how you guys do what you do with the motors and the bikes and everything. And, hey, man, appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.